Welcome to A Reason for Hope, your question connection with the entire Word of God. We would love for you to join in our conversation. Simply follow us on our Facebook page at Calvary Christian Fellowship of Tucson. If you have a question, email or text us at questionsforhope at gmail.com. Now here's your host, pastor, author, and Bible teacher, Scott Richards, along with his right-hand man, Sean Richards. Well, a very good afternoon, morning, or evening to you. Welcome to this edition of A Reason for Hope. A Reason for Hope, for those of you happening across our broadcast for the very first time, is our daily journey through God's Word, one question of the heart at a time. And that's certainly where you come in. You supply the questions, the Bible supplies the answers on each and every edition of A Reason for Hope. So uh, maybe you are uh, struggling to uh, understand a particular part of the Bible. Maybe you've uh, sat under a, a bit of teaching that has raised more questions for you and has provided you answers. Maybe you've been asked a tough question by a skeptic or a non-believer and felt uh, you were a day late and a dollar short as far as being able to give a reason for the hope that is within you with uh, meekness and reverence, as the Bible encourages us to do. Hey, uh, bring those questions on. It is our desire to strengthen your foundation of faith in uh, the reliability and uh, the divine authorship of the Bible itself. Uh, if you are on the outside looking in at a relationship with God personally, we'd love to introduce you to having a personal relationship with Jesus as the broadcast unfolds. Just just bring your questions on, and uh, we'll turn to the Bible and answer them together. We're often asked, uh, what is an acceptable question for a reason for hope? Uh, pretty simple standards we have here. As long as it's a sincere question, if you're looking for an answer straight from the Bible, we'll be happy to entertain it. So uh, if uh, people are uh, listening to this and they want to know how they can get their questions to us, make a two-way communication, how can they do that, Sean? Well, if you're joining us on Reach Radio or one of our radio affiliates, you can email us at questionsforhope at gmail.com. If you'd like proper spelling of that or know how to access it for future reference, you can join us on any one of our websites. Our primary one will, of course, be our church website, calvarychristianfellowship.com. That's C-A-L-V-A-R-Y, christianfellowship.com. If you click on the Watch Live tab, you'll be sent to our streaming page, which is CCF Tucson. .online.church. There, of course, you can engage with us face-to-face. We'll have the email address spelled out for you at the bottom of the screen, and on the right-hand side of the screen, you'll have an opportunity to chat with us while we were live. We'll be keeping an eye on that as the broadcast unfolds. And if we aren't broadcasting live, but you still go to those venues, you'll be given a countdown clock to when we will next be live in your respective time zone. You can set the calendar, so to speak. YouTube is a reason for hope, and Facebook is Calvary Christian Fellowship of Tucson. The advantage there is if you give us a like or subscribe, you'll be notified when we are going live in your respective time zone, as well as have all of the previous broadcasts spelled out for you by title and date. However, the downside of YouTube and Facebook is that they Well, they don't really ever like what we have to say, but if we're taken down for whatever reason, uh, Facebook has been having some issues with muting, and a reason for hope, as always, the algorithm hates us. But if you still share with other people, we want this to be a one-on-one and genuine encounter and exchange, so don't worry about the numbers. Just make sure that if we aren't able to communicate with you specifically, you can still join us on our website because they can't ban us on our own platform yet. Uh, 
I guess if Canada has any foreshadowing of it, that may be coming soon as well. But when we're talking about these issues, we will continue to talk until we are in fact silenced. So with that being said, any sincere Bible questions are welcome for the next hour. Sincerity means you want to hear the answer. Bible meaning the substance of the question and answer. Both involve the scripture, not that they are vaguely mentioned in one or the other. And then finally, that this is asked in the form of a question. We will answer it in the form of a answer. We've got a few that we want to get into, as well as some brief updates concerning current events. But before we say a word, we'd like to send some off to our Lord, make sure he speaks more than we do. So why don't we take a moment to pray? Yeah. Father, thank you that we have this opportunity to be able to draw close to you during this time. And that's exactly what we want to do. Thank you, Lord, that uh, you tell us where two or more will be gathered in your name. You'd be there in the midst. And I thank you, Lord, that distance is no issue for you. You're just as real with those that are tuning in as you are here in this studio right now. Uh, And we thank you, Lord, for your presence here. We thank you for the power and direction of your Holy Spirit. We pray that you would illuminate your word, apply it to our lives, and um, who knows, uh, perhaps uh, come alongside somebody who needs to know you in a personal way and introduce them to your love directly before this broadcast is over. We thank you for this privilege in Jesus' name. Amen. That is true. Now, quick uh, current events update. Obviously, the Internet has always been a cesspool of human nature, and social media, of course, being the main source of that, but we can't underestimate the fact that TV and media studios have also been trying to appeal to the lowest common denominator. Uh, What's, I guess, the most recent thing that should rightly be responded to with some, I guess, uh, squinted eyes at best? Yeah, well, uh, apparently the uh, FX network, which is a wholly owned subsidiary of uh, ABC, which is a wholly owned subsidiary of uh, Disney, uh, is uh, producing a cartoon for its sort of adult area cartoons aired after 10 o'clock that has uh, the delightful name of Demon Child. And uh, what Demon Child is all about is uh, the uh, uh, ironic and comic Uh, antics of a pagan woman who gives herself fully over to Satan. Satan, by the way, uh, voiced by actor Danny DeVito, who uh, gives birth to the Antichrist and the uh, uproarious uh, adventures and misadventures that happens when you're the prince of evil growing up in this world and anticipating your time on the world stage. I I say this all tongue-in-cheek. The response to all of this, it's interesting. There was a time a few years ago where if uh, a major network were going to air something like this, there'd be uh, a huge hue, cry, and an uproar. But these days, it barely registers a yawn. Now, Sean, why do you suppose the attitude towards uh, these kinds of things that seemingly are blasphemous, seemingly are in your face and outrageous uh, affronts to uh, God's truth? Why is it that uh, we just don't even really seem to care anymore? Well, I think you can go at it from three angles. First of all, whenever these things come up, it's always uh repeat offense, so to speak, because the subplot's been done to death, and I think people are just tired of it. That's the first. They don't express any emotion because they expressed it before and it didn't accomplish anything. They're not going to waste emotional energy. We're, of course, referring to the literal plot line of this cartoon, also following the plot line of Arnold Schwarzenegger and Times Films and Kate Blanchett the, the, the and Times Omen, Films. The Omen the- series. Or Ghost Rider yeah. 2, Spirit of Vengeance, which we know slammed in the box 
office. Yeah. So when we're, I'm being <laughs> yeah. sarcastic. Yeah. Well, so when we're talking about these issues, people may not be necessarily lethargic. They may just be fatigued. They know that this, of course, isn't going to be addressed with emotional reaction. So they're just going to decide with their attention and time. They won't give them the ad revenue by watching it, and that's a legitimate response. They just don't care. The second kind of response, I think, on top of apathy, just not being interested, is because they are overestimating the kind of interest this sort of spin and cartoon will produce. Uh, For those of you, of course, listening, you're probably unfamiliar with these things. I myself haven't watched them, but I'm familiar with the internet. The cartoon adult-esque theme that this is basing itself off of is being basically one of many mass-produced studios like Star Trek's Cartoon Variant and others that have all been building off of the momentum of one popular adult cartoon, Rick and Morty. Now, again, I don't recommend it. It's very coarse, vulgar, and profane. But the popularity of that show is simply the studio following the money and saying, if we branch out into other genres, other writers, other studios, so to speak, but follow the same format as this, what actually brought the success? Was it good writing? Was it good characters? Or was it just the fact that it was 2D and crude? They're kind of, uh, I guess, spitballing, so to speak. And in their attempts to appeal to the lowest common denominator, it's ironic that they're appealing to an audience that is generally known for pirating information rather than giving them ad revenue. So the point being made is incompetence on the part of the studio. They're just thinking, if I produce a cartoon based off of a previously successful cartoon, People will watch it and I'll make money. We'll let time be the dictation of that. The third kind of reason why we just don't see a lot of response to this is once again because we're living in a world where evil by nature is going to consistently overplay its hand. That if you're inundated and immersed in this kind of blasphemy to the point where we're just thankful that God isn't cursed in, you know, deodorant commercials, that when it's mentioned on TV stations, we just sort of treat that as the norm. When we normalize evil at its peak, this is when we have to be extra careful because desensitization would be the third form of reaction. We're so immersed in evil, so immersed in rejection of God, and so immersed in the outright mocking of the things of God, in this case the end times, that people just assume that this is what TV is all about now. And that is, I think, the reason why we aren't seeing the kind of responses that were demonstrated, say, for example, at the uh, poetically released on June 6, 2006, Omen remake, the graphic nature and portrayals of the Antichrist by uh, William Defoe's films and so forth. All these things are just evil for evil's sake. But the more these things become mainstream, the more these things become normal, and the more that studios just don't take a hint in saying, well, if we just produce a cartoon, doesn't that make money? Not necessarily. So once again, when it comes to the reasons for a reaction or lack thereof, I would consider it, given total information, all of these possibilities completely justified. In a world filled with evil, it's not up to us to always oppose it, 
we can just be the alternative to it because corrupt studios are producing corrupt information. That doesn't mean we have to go tit for tat and try to meet them on their level. We can just continue to pursue good content and money will speak. The second opportunity for studios to not only learn from mistakes, but also to repeat uh, basically a misunderstood success is again, the world being the world and we aren't of the world. It doesn't affect us any iota, the kind of mistakes they make or the kind of advertisements they pull, especially given the fact that the sort of individuals, once again, that would appeal that would be appealed to rather by this show, uh, again, aren't the sort of people that are proactively contributing to society. They're not going to be providing a lot of money to these uh, to these studios. And finally, when we're talking about the issue of us personally, should I be emotionally reactive to this? Should I not be apathetic? Is this a sign of me being a lukewarm Christian and all these other statements taken out of context? And the answer simply is no. When yep. we're talking about the world being the world, the world yep. doing the world's things, evil trying to demonstrate its nature full force, we can continue to know that good being demonstrated in our life, even one-tenth of its intended right. force, is going to accomplish far more than cursing the dark. Just be the light and let the dark sort itself out in relation to it. Yeah, uh, you know, and uh, I think uh, when these things come up, yeah, a, a couple psalms hit me uh, in it. Uh, first of all, uh, just because these things are on the air doesn't mean that they have to be in our hearts and in our minds. Uh, I think of what uh, David wrote in Psalm 101, verse 3, where he said, I will set nothing wicked before my eyes. I hate the work of those who fall away. It shall not cling to me. Well, one of the greatest ways that you can have the work of those who fall away cling to you is by con continually exposing yourself to it. You know, it's funny. Sometimes I, I wonder if uh, provocative programming like this uh, would uh, gather as much attention if it weren't for, say, uh, people with Christian values or conservative values tuning in to see if this was uh, really as bad as it was portrayed. Uh, you know, to me, uh, I don't think you need to explore the nuances of the humor or anything else like that. This is obviously a, an in-your-face uh, before the true and living God, and uh, people will one day give an account for that. And it, it reminds me as well uh, of a scripture when these things come up. Uh, in Psalm 50, uh, you know, it, when uh, King David uh, was talking about uh, the wicked of his day, in verse 16 it says, But to the wicked God says, What right have you to declare my statutes or take my covenant in your mouth, seeing that you hate instruction and cast my words behind you? When you saw a thief, you consented with him, and you've been a partaker with adulterers. You give your mouth to evil and your tongue frames deceit. You sit and speak against your brother. You slander your own mother's son. Now, this is the, the, the kicker for me here. It says, these things you have done, and I kept silent, God speaking. You thought I was altogether like you, but I will rebuke you and set them in order before your eyes. Now, consider this, you who forget God, lest I tear you in pieces and there be none to deliver. Whoever offers praise glorifies me, and to him who orders his conduct aright, I'll show the salvation of God. You know, I love what the Lord says. Uh, God doesn't say to us that uh, justice delayed is justice denied, or the fact that God doesn't strike uh, the FX studios with a lightning bolt doesn't mean that God is not aware or that God does not care about uh, the kind of stuff that is being portrayed there. Uh, God will 
bring all of these things into account. I think of the last line of the book of Ecclesiastes. King Solomon was the wisest man who ever lived, but he certainly had a roller coaster experience in his walk with God. After walking away from God for a huge part of his adult life, uh, he finally came back to his senses and he says, Now hear the end of the matter. Uh, serve God and keep his, com- fear God and keep his commandments. For such is the entire duty of man. For God will bring into account everything that is said and done. In other words, it's all going to be exposed before God in judgment. Um, I feel sorry for people that put forth this sort of stuff uh, because one day they will give an account for it. And hopefully uh, one of the things that we need to understand is the reason that God just doesn't put an end to it right now is because he is giving people the opportunity to be able to turn and repent. Now, I I know there's probably in our uh, viewing and listening audience a few people that would uh, agree with my assertion that at least at one point uh, they were a pretty hard case, that uh, there were a lot of Christians who thought they would never come to know the Lord. But God was patient and gave you the opportunity to be able to turn to him. Uh, you know, if uh, something like this program bothers you, then pray for the people who are involved. If something a politician says bothers you, pray for that person, that their heart would turn to a, a genuine relationship with God. You know, it is far better to plead with God about men than to plead with men about God. The old saying goes, uh, I think uh, there is more that is accomplished through prayer than anything else. And, you know, what a, a great way uh, to uh, kind of boomerang this whole endeavor on the wicked one himself uh, as using it as a uh, clarion call to pray for people like Danny DeVito and the, the people who were involved with the production and the writing and uh, who, uh, you know, put these things on the air. Uh, if we can pray for them that somehow they might turn to know the Lord and something good can come out of it. Yeah, and again, always have a modicum of grace for actors just doing acting. I don't think Danny DeVito cares about spiritual issues. He's just getting a paycheck. Our prayer should be for the writers and the director because the producers of the show are ultimately the ones that will be held accountable. And when you take the time to note just how much work, and I mean hard work goes into animating these sort of series. That's why I just roll my eyes whenever I hear about these sort of things, because you need heavy incentive to keep things like animated projects going. And if it's just meant to be a passion project by someone who lost a Twitter argument and wants to get back through his profession, I'll I'll let them uh, basically have to answer for that money. But the point being made is that don't be concerned about these things in the short or long term, because even if devil child ends up being, or demon child rather, uh, ends up being the next big FX hit or whatever, it doesn't change the gospel or our lives I I don't foresee it having uh, 30 years of uh, airtime like, say, The Simpsons. Yeah, so with that said, um, question... Uh, Before we go into another question, just wanted to get to a quick prophecy update. Uh, Wanted to follow up on some of the things we've shared with you this week about the impending uh, re-entering of uh, the United States and Europe into the uh, so-called nuclear deal uh, with Iran. Uh, there are a number of articles being written today. A, uh, a Biden administration spokesperson echoed uh, the European Union foreign policy chief statement saying that uh, the parties involved are getting closer to striking the nuclear deal. White House National Security Council spokesman John Kirby said, we are closer now than ever 
than even just a couple of weeks ago because Iran made a decision to make some concessions. Uh, the TV channel France 24 noted that the Biden administration is eager to restore the deal trashed by former President Donald Trump. Uh, again, the French broadcaster uh, added the comments of top uh, EU diplomat Josep Borrell, who said, I'm hoping that in the coming days we're not going to lose this momentum and we can close the deal. It's clear there's common ground. We have an agreement that takes it in that into account and I think answers everyone's concerns. Well, and not everyone's concerns. Uh, former Israeli military and security officials responded to this by uh, publishing a written letter to President Biden, asking him to reject the proposed nuclear deal, pointing out the deal's flaws. They state, and here's a quote, the agreement creates a clear legal pathway for Iran to obtain nuclear weapons no later than 2031. Uh, again, the Israeli TV network, I-24 News, uh, reported the content of the letter. Uh, despite your administration's re uh, repeated declaration commitment to prevent Iran from attaining nuclear weapons, this agreement creates a clear legal pathway for Iran to obtain nuclear weapons by 2031 while denying the signatories any tools to prevent that eventuality. It was signed by 32 former Israeli generals on behalf of 5,000 members of the Israeli Defense uh, Forces. Uh, the deal will unleash a nu regional nuclear arms race in which states like Egypt, Saudi Arabia, and other Sunni states will seek to either develop or acquire nuclear weapons to mitigate the Iranian threat. So, uh, you know, the other troubling parts of uh, the so-called Biden nuke deal uh, is that it would provide a financial windfall for global terrorism and jihad. Uh, again, uh, the uh, former Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu published a uh, op-ed uh, that uh, said the deal would be Tehran's golden paved pathway to a nuclear bomb. He called the proposed agreement madness and the height of folly. The economic incentives offered by the new nuclear deal would be a massive boost for Iran's global terrorist activities, Mossad Chief Dedi Barnea warned last week. He said the deal will infuse Iran's purse with billions of dollars, over a billion dollars a month, by the way, that will be diverted to fund terrorist groups, including the Lebanon-based Hezbollah, the Hamas, and the Islamic, Islamic Jihad, as well as other proxies, and will pose a challenge for both the U.S. and for Israel. Now, the United States' official position is that Iran is the largest state sponsor of terrorism in the world today. So uh, Israel isn't taking these events and probably the eventuality that within the next couple of weeks, there will be an Iran nuclear deal uh, struck. I think what you'll probably see the way politics works in our country is that the signing, the actual coming forth of this agreement is probably going to be timed to have maximum impact upon the midterm elections that are coming up. Uh, the uh, Biden administration and those uh, who support it uh, politically certainly want to have something positive, or at least something they could bill as being positive, to be able to share with voters going into election that uh, polls indicate is moving in the opposite direction. But uh, Israel is uh, not going to take this sitting down. Uh, the IDF is enhancing its capabilities to launch an airstrike against Iran's fortified and underground nuclear sites, including uh, this Jerusalem Post report that Israel is going to buy four important KC-46A 
refueler aircraft from Boeing for $927 million. This deal has been in the work for years. Uh, Defense Minister Benny Gantz pushed for it to be completed. The aircraft are needed to replace older aircraft, and in light of Iran tensions, they will arrive in Israel around 2025. So uh, we do see a lot of the pieces of this puzzle coming together at this particular time. Uh, IDF Chief of Staff Lieutenant General Aviv Kohavi has made it clear that he views a rekindling of the 2015 nuclear deal as dangerous. He said uh, publicly that he has asked for fresh operational plans to be prepared to strike Iran in order to stop its nuclear program if uh, necessary. There's a really uh, good summary article about all this on uh, the legalinsurrection.com. Uh, blog site uh, if you'd like to uh, dig uh, more deeply into all of this. But the uh, the long and the short of it is we want to keep you up to date on these things. Uh, the Bible tells us that one of the signs of the times that tells us that the return of Jesus is drawing near is wars and rumors of wars, not just globally, but specifically as they pertain to Israel, the whole uh, joint comprehensive plan of action as it's known. And uh, the approach and the avoidance that has gone on as far as all of these things, as well as Iran's uh, saber-rattling in the region, definitely fits the idea of rumors of wars, some of the wars like we saw with Islamic Jihad uh, even a couple of weeks ago. Uh, the uh, rhetoric has a funny way of bursting forth into reality. Israel, uh, earlier in this week, as we mentioned to you, uh, conducted a pretty stunning raid in Syria outside of the Damascus airport where over one thousand Iranian-made missiles were destroyed in a single raid. So uh, the Cold War, if you will, between Iran and Israel is definitely heating up. Uh, We are told in passages like Ezekiel chapter 38 that there is going to be a last days coalition uh, between Russia and uh, Iran is one of the nations specifically mentioned, Persia, as being a part of this last days invasion of Israel that God will supernaturally intervene to defeat. But it is very interesting to see the uh, players take their marks on stage, if you will, uh, setting the stage for uh, the events that the Bible predicted uh, way back uh, during the time of Ezekiel, almost uh, 2,600 years ago. All right, so let us know if that's clear. And, of course, uh, not obviously encouraging, but what would be the point of sharing, again, all this information, not for us to be in despair at the state of the world, but for us to know this world is heading that much closer to a place where we don't have to despair any longer. Through incompetent leadership, it gives us greater hope for the ultimate King of Kings. When we see the world basically manifesting itself as the fallen sinful state that it is, whether through the actions or neglect of men or just the natural state we find ourselves separated from God, it makes the fact that we We do have the promise of our reunion with him, all the more sweet and all the more incentivized to pursue and share with as many as will still receive it. Yeah, as Jesus said, when you see these things begin to happen, look up, for your salvation draws near. Don't look down, don't get depressed, but remember, there's a new world coming, and the Lord is coming back to right this world gone wrong. All right, a question by email sent along to us from Adrian, who wanted to know... Can you help understand what Jesus means when he says, this is quoting Matthew 9, 5 through 6, which is easier to say, your sins are forgiven, or to say, get up and walk, but so that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. Then he said to the paralytic, 
get up, pick up your bed, and go home. Obviously, there are verses before this and after this, but you addressed this in your book, did you not? Yeah, uh, the book Reason for Hope. Reasonable we, Doubts. Reasonable, uh, reasonable Reason for Hope is the, our program here. The book is Reasonable Doubts. And, uh, you know, we asked that question, you know, when uh, Jesus was uh, in a synagogue uh, in uh, his hometown, a man was uh, brought to him who was paralyzed. And uh, when Jesus uh, dealt with this man, by the way, it's a pretty dramatic series of uh, events in the scripture. Uh, The house that Jesus was in was Simon Peter's home by the Sea of Galilee in the city of Capernaum. Uh, it was uh, so over, overwhelmed by crowds. Jesus was definitely the hottest ticket in town. People wanted to see him do miracles, hear him teach. They had needs. And uh, people couldn't get near the house. Well, you had uh, some individuals, at least three individuals, maybe four, uh, who were desperate men about to make a desperate move. They had carried their paralyzed friend to Jesus to pray for. Uh, now, Uh, If you were paralyzed in that uh, day and age, it was a death sentence because in our time, you know, first of all, people who are paralyzed don't get better. And uh, the attending uh, problems that come with paralysis, like bed sores, infections, and other things like this, uh, you didn't last very long if, in fact, uh, you were paralyzed. So we don't know whether it was from some disease or whether it was uh, an accident that had paralyzed this man, but he was absolutely incapable of movement himself. Uh, His friends had uh, built a uh, stretcher uh, out of wood and had brought him to Jesus. Well, seeing the crowds and seeing that there was no way they could even get into Simon Peter's living room, uh, what they did was pretty inventive. Desperate men make desperate moves. And so they climbed up on the top of Simon Peter's house, took an educated guess about where Jesus would be underneath, and they started digging. Now, if you're familiar with the way the houses of that day were built, they're kind of like our Santa Fe-style homes that we have here in the Southwest. They had a flat roof on top of them. The top of the roof uh, was uh, constructed with uh, adobe-like clay that had a glaze over the top of it. Then on the underneath of it, you had palm thatching that served as insulation, and then you would have the ceiling of the house underneath that. And this isn't your speculation. We can literally see archaeologically the kind of styles of houses they not only had descriptive-wise by the writings, but we uncovered them up through digging and found out that's how they built them. Yeah. So these men took a good educated guess, dug through the first layer, pulled the thatching aside, and could you imagine being a guy like Simon Peter? Boy, I guess he was thrilled to have Jesus there in his own living room. But uh, I don't know if it happened this way, but uh, Peter listening to Jesus speak and interact with the uh, Jewish leaders were there, suddenly crumbs start falling on his head from the ceiling. Looks up and suddenly this impromptu skylight is being built in his living room, then crashing through the palm fronds and different things they would use for insulation. Uh, these men lowered their friend down on this stretcher on ropes and put him right in front of Jesus. Now, when uh, this happened, we are told that Jesus leaned over and said to this man, Son, your sins are forgiven you. Now, what a beautiful moment of reconciliation between God and man, and sometimes we go, oh, that's beautiful, but that's not what this guy came for. And that's not what motivated his friends to make such a bold move. Uh, They were looking for a healing. 
And, uh, you know, some people look at that and they say, oh, my goodness, for Jesus to say your sins are forgiven, that's, that's great, but this guy needs a healing touch. It's almost like uh, someone uh, out there in the middle of the desert dying of exposure. You find them out there and you say, oh, you look a little uh, overexposed. Let me give you some sunscreen. Now, that's definitely not what you would need right off the top. Now, the religious experts who were hanging on Jesus' every move and trying at this point to figure out exactly whether he was legit or not, heard him say to the man, your sins are forgiven. And they said to one another under their breath, who is this man uh, that is forgiving sins? Only God can forgive sins. Where'd they get that idea? Well, uh, from Psalm 51, among other places, King David said, uh, un- uh, to you, against you and you alone have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. Only the ultimate affected party, if you will, can offer forgiveness. Like, for instance, if you and I were riding a bus across town and a guy got on the bus and came up and whacked you in the face for no reason, and I looked at the guy and said, oh, well, don't worry about it. I forgive you for doing that. You'd probably look at me and go, well, that's really nice, but I'm the one who got whacked. I mean, doesn't my opinion matter? Well, we would instinctively know it's the person who's wronged who has the ultimate right to forgive or not. Well, God is the ultimate offended party in every sin. Every rebellion and sin we've committed against him has ruined his perfectly good creation. So when Jesus said, your sins are forgiven, and these guys said, who but God can forgive sins, they were exactly right. And Jesus picked up on it in a shot. Thus the verses that were asked about. Yeah, he, uh, he said them, which is easier, to say to this man, your sins are forgiven, or to say to him, arise, take up your pallet and walk. Now, just stopping there for a minute, which is easier? Meaning it's easier to say the words your sins are forgiven and mean them? Because how do I verify your sins are forgiven? Well, here's the deal. Uh, For man, both of those things are impossible. But But, one is easier to say because you don't have to be accountable to the follow-through. Both of those would be impossible for man. But then Jesus goes on to say what? So that you may know... know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. And then he says to the young man, I say to you, arise and walk. Now, what does the following verse say after verse 9? He took up his bed immediately and walked. Now, so. now, could you imagine for a second what that would have been like? Being this paralyzed man, you can't feel a thing. You're probably embarrassed as all get out. You've broken up this party. You've made this hole in Simon Peter's ceiling. Uh, there were probably people that were shaking their heads saying, oh, this is the height of rudeness. You know, you're uh, paralyzed, you, know, so you, you can't know, really object. Let's, uh, let's get, and you're stuck there. You know, and, and Jesus comes to you, and you have no idea what he's going to say. He tells you your sins are forgiven, and then he tells you to rise, take up your bed, and walk. Could you imagine what it would be like for someone who couldn't feel a thing to suddenly have feeling returned to your hands and to your feet? Uh, Could you imagine what it was like for him to put his feet down on the floor there? I mean, even feeling the, the flooring must have been like a sensual feast for him. And suddenly he had the ability to be able to stand up and walk. Well, what do you do when someone tells you to do that? Uh, You take up your pallet and go home. You stand up and you walk. So why does Jesus do this? To wow a crowd? Nah, not really. Uh, To alleviate suffering, partially. But most importantly, to prove a point. Not just that he was healing this man from the inside out. And by the way, saying to this man, first, your sins are forgiven, 
Jesus was starting with his most important need. Now, I know this runs in the face of how we tend to view human logic. We tend to think the spiritual is okay, but the physical is really what matters. But God knows that the spiritual is what really matters, and the physical, it matters to an extent, but no matter how tremendous a healing is, it's a temporary uh, gift. If Jesus can bring forgiveness of sins to this man and reconcile him to a right relationship with God, he has, in fact, given him a gift that will last forever. And so uh, Jesus starts with the most important. And then in order to show those who are there that he had authority on earth to forgive sins, and concomitantly, what did that say about the person and authority of Jesus? So in a statement that couldn't be verified one way or another, or rather could be falsified with one by the other. You say, rise, take up your bed and walk. That's a hard thing to say because then they have to rise up and walk. That's impossible. Yeah. Right. But it would be easy to say your sins are forgiven because there's no consequence in the immediate. You can just say those words and nothing physical, visible happens yeah, to them. Yeah, you can't see a sin forgiven. You might be able to see the impact that a sin forgiven has later on in someone's life down the line, but it's something that happens in the heart. It's not something that you can verify physically and tangibly. So Jesus, in doing both a spiritual healing and a physical healing, then verified the spiritual healing had taken place, something only God could do, by backing it up with a physical healing. And that's the main point. Jesus, in that sleepy little seaside Galilean town, was demonstrating that in their midst wasn't just a truth teacher. Wasn't, wasn't even just a great prophet. Wasn't just someone who knew the words, uh, the words to share with hurting people. Not even a miraculous healer. He had the authority to forgive sins and authority and privilege reserved only for the one who's going to be the judge of all mankind, God himself. And this is especially Adrian, key to understand, because this is how Jesus claimed to be God, by doing and saying the sort of things only God can truthfully do. If you subscribe to the modern moniker of, well, we just got to leave the Old Testament behind, got to unhitch your faith, and just focus on the New Testament. First off, you're not going to understand the first verse of the New Testament. Who is David? Who is Abraham? And why is that important for Jesus being the Christ? Right. I digress. The point being made is this. If Jesus not only taught things, but backed them up with publicly verified miracles, and the things he backed up with publicly verified miracles were the sort of things that only God should rightly say. What is he doing? What is he proving through those publicly verified miracles? His claim to be deity. And if you're familiar with the Old Testament, you'd recognize these things. Make sure you read the Bible in order. That's the key. Then there won't be confusion. Thank you for the question, Adrian. Uh, question from... Well, they, don't, they gave us the name of the family, but I don't want to give away the email address, so I'll just address them as the group. The fam. Yeah. Uh, the fam wants it's to know. Fam. <laughs> First off, I want to thank you for spending your time and understanding that God has given you to help us all as well. It's our honor and privilege, fam. Thank you for the question. They're doing a study in Isaiah, uh, and in chapter 19 concerning Egypt, verses 22 through 25, I'll read them in a moment. It says, Egypt, Assyria, and Israel will be a blessing in the earth. Seems like this is yet to happen. Yeah. Uh, so would that be during the reign of Christ? Now, 
I'll answer your question shortly in this. Yes, you're right on that. In the millennial kingdom, as it's referred to, Revelation 20, that would be the time frame of that prophecy's fulfillment. But the question comes with reading Joel 3:19. It seems like God is speaking of the reign of Christ. We'll challenge that. Uh, but says Egypt and Edom, by the way, will become a waste, but Judah will be inhabited forever. I know God's word doesn't contradict itself. I just don't understand. Maybe it's a timing issue. Thank you. You is in all caps. Well, thank you, fam. <laughs> the timing issue, yeah, is just the issue. Let me read Isaiah 22, or 19:22, and we'll get this whole statement in its proper context. Let me start in verse 19. It says, In that day, okay, so a day is in mind here, there will be an altar to the Lord in the midst of the land of Egypt. Now, would that be during the Great Tribulation? No. Maybe at the end, like as Jesus Christ is literally returning, they'll assemble it in record time? No. No, okay, so they'll have time to not only... Probably not. Yeah, Egypt will know who the Lord is and build an altar to him. And a pillar to the Lord at its border. So geographically, things have uh, been altered a bit. And it will be a sign and for a witness to the Lord of hosts in the land of Egypt. For they will cry to the Lord because of the oppressors. He will send them a Savior and a mighty one, and he will deliver them. I wonder when he did that. So notice, they built an altar, and they built this pillar at Egypt's border in response to God having sent a deliverer for Egypt and an oppressor, which brings me to Daniel 11, but I'm jumping the gun here. Then the Lord, verse 21, will be known to Egypt, and the Egyptians will know the Lord in that day, and will make sacrifice and offering. Yes, they will make a vow to the Lord and perform it, and the Lord will strike Egypt, and he will strike and heal it. This is a reference to another passage. Feel free to ask for clarification if you want. In short, they won't attend the Feast of Tabernacles for one year. They won't get rain that year, and they'll learn their lesson real quick. Yeah. But that's what's being referred to. He will strike and heal it, and they will return to the Lord, and he will be entreated by them and heal them. In that day there will be a highway from Egypt to Assyria, and the Assyrian will come into Egypt, and the Egyptian into Assyria, and the Egyptians will serve with the Assyrians. In that day Israel will become one of three with Egypt and Assyria, blessing in the midst of the land, whom the Lord of hosts shall bless, saying, Blessed is Egypt, my people." and Assyria, the work of my hands, and Israel, my inheritance. So in the mass of these verses, we're given some interesting details about, interestingly enough, two of Israel's at the time of Isaiah, oldest and greatest enemies. Right. Not just in regards to Egypt and the Exodus. They didn't know the Lord was God, (laughs) and they still didn't at that time, and all the way to the time of Isaiah. Even Pharaoh Necho wasn't... uh, too keen on the worship of the true and living God, but he had the wherewithal to reference him when certain kings went into battles they shouldn't have. Feel free to ask if Josiah, you, yeah. Yeah, if you want yeah. to know more about that. Yeah. But Assyria was the nation that was currently at war with Israel, and yes. they didn't have anything to do with the true and living God. Shenekreb, who was the spokesman of King, or not Shenekreb, uh, the Rabshakeh, yeah. who was the spokesman of King Shenekreb, he uh, had some choice words for the God of Israel and saying the gods of the nations couldn't protect you from us. What makes you think your God can protect you from us? Not exactly a worshiper of the true and living God. He, he learned the hard way not to mess with him, but that's yeah, another God story. Sent, God sent one angel and his entire army was wiped out, and we can verify that archaeologically <laughs> in the British Museum. It's fun. Yeah. But we're putting together all these details, and as is the nature of prophecy, hindsight in reverse gives us an unclear picture. What we do know is that this will be at a time that wasn't when Isaiah was speaking, isn't what's being spoken today. So if it's not the past or the present, what's left, it's the the future. future, Right. (laughs) If I put it so close to the future, 
and say, oh, well, this is during the Great Tribulation. Some details don't add up because Israel will be cursed for all nations for the Lord's sake during that time period. The Lord will be uh, protecting his people, granted, but that ultimate culmination, that sending of a deliverer, is what we would reference as the second coming of Christ. And if we get our timeline straight, regardless of your view of end times, unless you dismiss them entirely, after the second coming is during the millennium. So Isaiah 19 and the context of that statement regarding Egypt and Assyria will be during that time period, post-tribulation and not present and certainly not past. We can't fit those details that were given into that. Note the altar to the Lord and the pillar at their border and the road that, by the way, in reference to Zechariah, is going to extend through Israel and all the way into Assyria, which, by the way, today encompasses pretty much southern Turkey all the way to the border of modern-day Israel today. Right. Their territory yeah. is pretty expansive, but the people groups are fairly diverse as far as what the British divided their series up to. You can complain about that later. But the point being made is this. Isaiah 19, you got that right. I'm making sure this is clear because you're going to see the same methodology applied to Joel 3. In Joel 3, and again, you mentioned verse 19. Let me start in verse 18. Actually, let's, uh, let's go all the way to verse 14. Multitudes, multitudes in the valley of decision, for the day of the Lord is near in the valley of decision. The sun and moon will grow dark, and the stars will diminish their brightness. The Lord will also, also will roar from Zion, utter his voice from Jerusalem. The heavens and earth will shake, but the Lord will be a shelter for his people and the strength of the children of Israel. Now, we're still we've still got yeah. two verses to go before we get to verse 19 that mentions Assyria and Egypt. But what is the kind of language that's being used here well, as far as the sun and the moon going dark? It's, that, the, re- it's the return of Christ. So if Isaiah 19 is post-return of Christ, Joel 3 would be leading up to, if not at that point. Right, almost so, precisely. Yeah. So note that point. Yeah. Verse 17, So you shall know that I am the Lord your God, dwelling in Zion, that's a nickname for Jerusalem, my holy mountain, then Jerusalem shall be holy, and no aliens shall ever pass through her again. It will come to pass in that day that the mountain shall drip with new wine, the hills shall flow with milk, so now we're going into post. Yeah, the millennial kingdom. Yeah. Uh, and the brooks of Judah shall be flooded with water. A fountain shall flow from the house of the Lord and the water of the valley of Achaeus. Uh, that's a reference to Ezekiel 40, if you want to read more about it. Egypt shall be, notice, at the time that this brook is being formed, Egypt shall be a desolation and Edom a desolate wilderness because of violence against the people of Judah for they have shed innocent blood in their land. But Judah shall abide forever, and Jerusalem from generation to generation. For I will acquit them of the guilt of bloodshed, whom I had not acquitted, for the Lord dwells in Zion. So we got two time frames here. Last line of the book of Joel, by the way. Yeah, yeah. Uh, two time frames. We have post Res, or post-return of Christ, we're going Revelation 19 and 20. In Joel 3, we've got leading up to and in the middle of Revelation 19. The Battle of Armageddon, yeah. Yeah, and basically the first verse of Revelation 20. So what has happened leading up to the Joel 3 territory in Revelation 19? Has Egypt and Assyria been on Israel's side, or, like all nations, the Antichrist? Well, all nations will be gathered against Jerusalem, Zechariah tells us. So take that information for what it's worth. Continuing on with Joel and the others, where does Revelation 13 say all nations shall wonder after the beast. Right. So if these nations are not only 
admiring the demon child, to make a reference there, <laughs> yeah. uh, they're not going to be treating the people of God who will refuse his claim to be God. Yeah. Well, in fact, what does Zacharias say? Two-thirds of Israel will be killed, right. and God will judge the nations who did it. Not just Egypt and Assyria, but certainly including that. Yes. And this will result in their desolation. But then what happens? Restoration. The millennial kingdom. The right. entire earth is restored, and right. after judgment comes mercy. Now you say, but that doesn't make sense. Why would God judge someone then immediately restore them? How has God ever judged anyone and not followed that policy? Yeah. When it comes to and nations, by the way, when it comes to the nation of Israel, when they were sent into exile for 70 years into Babylon, at the end of the 70 years, did God say, all right, now you've learned your lesson, now I'll just let you be absorbed into the Persian Empire, and you guys will cease to exist as a people? No, he not only, Nehemiah 2 style, restored them back right. to the nation, but gave them an abundance that they never knew before. Right. And when Israel recognizes their Messiah, though they rejected him at first and were scattered to all nations, what did Ezekiel 37, excuse me, Ezekiel 37 say? <laughs> hope I didn't click something off. Yeah. What does Ezekiel 37 say as far as before the scattering would even take place? I will draw you from all nations. Right. Not Babylon. Right. All nations, all nations back nations, to myself. Yeah. yeah. This is the point, fam. The passage is basically referring to that transition from Egypt's judgment to Egypt's restoration, along with Assyria, along with every enemy of Israel. They'll now be a blessing to them rather than a curse. So note the time frame and how we're handling the text. We need, obviously, to have read the whole book. Note the information that we have, but piece together it on the basis of what we know, not what we don't know. As far as what we can know, wouldn't make a lot of sense for the Antichrist to allow an altar to be built to God in Egypt in a pillar at her border, as well as a road leading from Zion to Assyria so that they would all worship the Lord together. They're going to be worshiping something, but not the Lord. Then I ask the question, what could that appropriately be applied to? Well, there will be a time where the Lord rules and where he'll be restoring the earth. I think that fits more. Yeah. That would be where we'd get that dividing line. Yeah. Um, anything, Dad? No, I think that's great. All right. um, interesting question sent along to us on our uh, Facebook site from Craig uh, about the age of accountability. Boy, Craig, we get this question uh, a lot uh, because uh, it, it becomes a, a very relevant and a very real question, especially for those uh, who lose young ones, especially uh, babies that uh, pass away before they have an opportunity to be able to hear the gospel. Uh, you know, there's uh, a couple of verses, I think, that uh, give us some insight into all of this. Um, you know, one of the, the key passages that seems to uh, teach the idea that a child too young uh, not mentally developed enough to be able to make their own decision for God, is going to be taken care of by God, is in 2 Samuel chapter 12, uh, verses 21 through 23. Uh, there, uh, we are told about the uh, baby that was born to Bathsheba as a result of his adulterous affair with her and the subsequent murder of Uriah the Hittite. Uh, God uh, told uh, David through Nathan that the child was going to pass away. Uh, and so as the child uh, passed away, uh, David became aware of that. And then when he was aware the child had passed away, he got up and uh, dressed himself and ordered food, and he worshiped the Lord. And his servant said to him, what is this thing that you've done? You fasted and wept for the child when he was alive. When the child died, you arose and ate food. And he said, while the child was still alive, I fasted and wept, for who knows uh, whether the, uh, the Lord would have mercy. 
but can I uh, bring the child back from the dead? Uh, no, he said, I will go to him, uh, but he shall not come to me. Now, it does seem that the Lord is saying here that uh, this child was going to be safe in the arms of God and that David would see this child uh, again. So uh, David was comforted in this knowledge. In other words, David uh, knew that uh, his child was well taken care of in heaven. So, you know, that's one aspect of it. The other aspect of it is, okay, there's an age of accountability where a person then becomes responsible to say yes or no to a relationship with God. Where is it? Well, there's all kinds of theories uh, about that. Uh, Some people will point to uh, Jewish tradition and uh, say that 13 would be that age because that is uh, the age where the bar mitzvah and the bat mitzvah in Judaism take place. Son of the daughter of the covenant. They'd yeah. be considered accountable to keep the law. Yeah. So uh, prior to that time, uh, a child was not uh, held morally or legally responsible for their actions. After that time, they were. So it's and like so, the Stephen Wright joke where he said when he was a fetus, he would sneak out of his mother at night and say, I shouldn't start stealing stuff because I don't have any fingerprints. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> but, uh, you know, the idea uh, behind all of that is that uh, there's nowhere in the Scripture that says age 13 uh, is the age of accountability. Some uh, would take a look at the book of Numbers uh, where uh, God said that any Uh, of the people of Israel uh, who uh, had uh, failed to believe in God, uh, as far as adults were concerned, would not uh, come into the land, but uh, those that uh, were accountable, those that uh, were under the age of 22 or 21 and below uh, would be able to come into the land. And so some people would say that that's the age of accountability. You know, I think that those things are kind of a stretch, I think uh, the, the bottom line is God will hold someone accountable based upon the fact that God, as we are told in Psalm 33, fashions our hearts individually and considers all of our deeds. Uh, God knows when a child is developmentally able to be able to discern uh, spiritual truth, and that can happen at a lot of different uh, ages. You know, we do uh, baptisms here at the church, and sometimes uh, we will get children that will come up to be baptized. One in particular, I think you baptized, was four yeah. years old. Yeah. Uh, and asked him uh, if he uh, knew it, Jesus, and he said uh, no. And so I went, well, let me tell you about him. And then he received the Lord, and then I baptized him. Yeah. <laughs> but if a child is old enough to be able to understand who Jesus is, what Jesus has done for him, then, you know, even if we've seen children, uh, even at the age of four, uh, be able to make what I think are legitimate uh, decisions to receive Christ and be baptized as a result of that. Uh, but it varies. Uh, some kids develop later than all of that. And I think God takes all that into account. You know, where people get worried about this sort of thing is, is this idea that there's a, a sort of a line that God draws and that, uh, boy, if you violate that line, then somehow uh, a child of yours that has passed away is in big-time trouble. Maybe the best uh, way to look at this whole issue is to realize that God's bias is that none should perish, but that all should come to repentance. And if there's any possible way for an uh, individual to be saved, then God is going to provide that for them. And, and, you know, the, the, the most important thing, and this is something I share at memorials a lot, is uh, when people are uncertain, 
about uh, the eternal destiny of a loved one. Uh, I'll often say, uh, quoting uh, uh, Genesis chapter 18 and verse 25, will not the judge of all the earth do what is right? Uh, your child, this person, is in the hands of a just and loving God who will always do the right thing. So uh, I hope that helps you out with that, Craig. It is a question that we get quite a bit on, uh, on the, uh, the program, and it's certainly one of the more heartrending uh, questions that do come up. Interesting question uh, come, coming to us from our Twitter side. I'll throw this one out to you, Sean. Uh, a person on Twitter, they don't want their name to be mentioned. I don't know what their name is as a result of all of this. Uh, says this, I have often heard pastors use Revelation chapter 3 and verse 20 as an appeal to non-believers to receive Jesus into their heart. But I heard a message where the pastor said that this is really the Lord asking a lukewarm church to let him back into their life. Which is it, and is it possible to take it both ways? I think it's possible to take it both ways, but I'd always give context priority as king. If we ask the question, would it be appropriate for a non-believer to be asked, well, would you like to invite Jesus into your heart, they wouldn't be theologically sound, or someone else wouldn't be helpful in pointing out the context of that passage was addressing a church, not an individual who was an apostate. <laughs> Not helpful. Not but if, on the other no. hand, we were to ask the question, what was the original statement speaking to? The pastor was right, but the question is not definition, it's application. So in definition, what was Revelation 3.20 addressing? Well, a conversation that spanned all the way back to verse 14, a church, a gathering of believers who had become complacent in the state of the world, but were still his people, and that Jesus wanted to become more an active part of their lives again. He counsels them to buy from him, not from the things they're content in, the gold and silver and clothes that they had taken for granted. They didn't know that they don't have the things they need most. A church that thinks they can go without Jesus is more often... I guess uh, less rare than it ought to be these days. But the point being made for the sake of time is, okay, if the application then is taken beyond the text, where's the line? And I'd say, where appropriate? If I, for example, open to a page in the Bible and ask right. historically, well, Israel was told that if they pray and repent, I will restore them and heal their land. Well, I would say, historically, that was addressed to the Jews under their covenant. But is the application that a nation that turns back to God will be blessed? Yes. Yeah. In every way that Israel's covenant was, not necessarily, but note, where appropriate and applied. If someone invites them into their heart, it doesn't matter if it's under the pretense of Revelation 3.20 out of context, I just make that point. Yeah. And, uh, you know, I, I don't think we should hair split on it, uh, but it, it is the most interesting thing is if Jesus is going to get back into the heart of this church, it's got to happen one heart at a time. Each individual person who maybe doesn't know Jesus, but is, knows churchianity, needs to receive him as their Savior. So do you. God bless you. We'll see you all tomorrow. You've been listening to A Reason for Hope. Thank you again for joining us as we continue our journey through God's Word, one question of the heart at a time. Until we meet again, we would love to connect with you. You can text or email your questions to questionsforhope at gmail.com. You can also find out more about our ministry at calvarychristianfellowship.com. And be sure to join us next time on A Reason for Hope. A Reason for Hope is an outreach ministry of Calvary Christian Fellowship in Tucson, Arizona.